Father, where would we be without you? As we talk about important subjects, God, this month, as we talk about relationships from different angles, and no matter where each of us are in this room tonight, along that spectrum and in that journey of relationships and experiencing your goodness and your blessing, Father, I just pray you'd give us an open heaven, pray you'd anoint me, that out from me would come your word, living waters that would minister to every soul here tonight. Beautiful environment of grace, a safe place to talk about important things. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat tonight? So tonight, the subject that I am speaking on is sex and sexuality. <laughs> this is going to be good. It's, an, it's a complex subject. It's an important subject. And I just want to say right out of the gates, in framing some expectations here, there is no way, because of how important and how complex this subject is, that I can hope to do justice to this in the time that we have tonight. But I would still say, even though I, I can't do justice to it, I can't cover it all in a, in a moment, in a message like this, I would say that I think every conversation is a contribution. Every conversation is important. You know, I'm a parent. Andy and I have four kids. And one thing I know that as a parent is that I'm not naive enough to imagine that I can have a one-time awkward, embarrassing sex talk with my kids, like some one-and-done thing, and that's going to be enough to set them up to win in the area of sex and sexuality. Well, the same is true in the church. Tonight is not some kind of one-and-done embarrassing sex talk done publicly, right? <laughs> wow. Just breathe a sigh of relief on my behalf right there. But it's part of an ongoing conversation. Like many things we're wrestling with as a church. You know, in this day and age, we're wrestling with things like race and justice in the local church. Well, these are complex, ongoing conversations. These are part of a journey. And so that's how I want you to view tonight as a conversation uh, in a moment, it's a, a conversation, a contribution to your journey in this area. I also want to just right out of the gates honor and acknowledge that there are those in our church who have very different views or different beliefs from us or from me around the area of sex and sexuality. And I honor that. And I honor that if that's you, that you're even at the table as we discuss it. Yeah. I want to recognize that this is sensitive. I understand that. I want to honor that this is, for many, a deeply personal subject, and yet it's very important. And as it turns out, the Bible has a lot to say about this, which in a way is kind of ironic because oftentimes the church has not had a lot to say about this, despite the fact that God does and Jesus did. So it's important for us, I think, to come to God's Word if what we want to experience is His blessing, wholeness, and God's best. I believe that's what He wants for you. So so, so as we dive in tonight, one of the things I was wrestling with is I thought about this message, and trust me, I thought about it. It was on my mind, weeks and weeks, and as I read, I listened to different messages, and I thought on this and talked to people. One of the things I thought about is, why is this so important? Why is it so important to us? <clears throat> why is it so important to God? And I can think of at least three answers. I'm sure there are many more, but I, I thought of at least three answers to that question, one of which might be less obvious than the others. And that was to answer that question with a question. It's one of the reasons why I think sex and sexuality is so important is, is to ask yourself the question, what does sex represent? See, from a 
a theological point of view, sex represents something prophetic, something eternal, something powerful. I'll show it to you in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 to 32. It says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So Paul here, writing to the church in Ephesus, says, says, you know, when a husband and a wife come together, when they have sex in the context of marriage, that is a prophetic picture. That's not only a physical act, but it's a prophetic picture of Christ and the church. So no wonder it's important to God. No wonder it feels deeply important to us. And frankly, no wonder the enemy wants to distort it and to desecrate it, because what does he want to do? He wants to distort and to desecrate our view of Christ and his bride, the church. John Piper wrote a book uh, called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. I want to read an excerpt that'll be on the screen as well. It says, he said, to put it positively, sexuality is designed by God as a way to know God in Christ more fully. And that knowing God in Christ more fully is designed as a way of guarding and guiding our sexuality. Or to put it negatively, all misuses of our sexuality distort the true knowledge of Christ. All misuses of our sexuality derive from not having the true knowledge of Christ. So one of the reasons why this subject is so important is because of what it represents. The second and third reasons, I kind of put them together because to me they're two sides of the one coin. Like a double-edged sword. We need to talk about this. It's so important because it is all at once, both number two, wonderful, and number three, powerful. Like these are inseparable things. For me, it's wonderful and it's powerful. If we can just pause for a minute, because oftentimes when the church or Christians speak on this subject, it's sort of a tragedy that it's oftentimes from an overwhelmingly negative point of view. But can we just pause and remember, sex was God's idea. God is good. His creation is good. God created sex. Sometimes it's almost like you think people like would be shocked that God is like leaned over the balcony of heaven, if it has balconies, uh, and be like, oh my goodness, what are they doing down there? I know, oh, I never saw that coming. You know, it's not like he's telling the angels, don't look, it's not PG down there anymore. So like God's not mortified or embarrassed, right? I think that's important for us to recognize. Holy sexuality, and there is a difference, but holy sexuality is beautiful. It's a gift from God that he designed to be enjoyed and to be celebrated. That's an important distinction. Here's a proverb you didn't see coming. Proverbs 18 and 19. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 says, Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She's a loving, doe, a loving deer, a graceful doe. That's a compliment I'm going to use with Andy tomorrow. Babe, you're a graceful doe. <laughs> Listen to this. Let her breasts satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by your love. Bet you didn't know that was in the Bible. There it is, right? In Proverbs. What's my point? Well, firstly, I want you to lighten up a little bit because the minute we talk about subjects like this, I'm sure there are some people in the room who are like, oh man, I came tonight. I can't believe it. Feeling a little tense right now. It's all right, relax. But it's good to remember God designed sex to bring both pleasure and procreation. And that as Christians, we should see God's joy and his blessing in it. Listen, there's nothing inherently dirty or unclean about sex. When it's enjoyed in the way that God designed it to be enjoyed, it's a beautiful thing. So I think it's kind of a pity 
that because many, especially oftentimes people who've grown up in the church, can have emotional baggage around the subject of, of sex and then even within the context of marriage, struggle to enjoy it or to see it as anything other than dirty when it's actually God's blessing for them. You know, marriage is the perfect context to grow in trust and intimacy because it's covenant. It's about trust and commitment. It's the perfect environment. So the world imagines that in the area of sex and sexuality, the honeymoon is the ultimate. And then in one way or another, it's kind of all downhill from there. But God's design is exactly the opposite. Our experience as married people is is exactly the opposite of that. That actually in that environment of covenant and trust and commitment, intimacy only grows and gets better and better and better. So it's wonderful, but it's also powerful. It's wonderful and it's powerful. Now, some of my research took me to the, jur- the Journal of Neuroscience, a little light reading that I did. And the Journal of Neuroscience reported that the lateral orbifrontal cortex of the brain, that's a mouthful, but you didn't even know you had one. The lateral orbifrontal cortex of the brain shuts down during an orgasm. And it appears on a brain scan the same as a brain on heroin. Powerful. That's powerful right there, right? You're allowed to laugh, it's okay. I thought it was funny too. God designed our bodies in sexual intimacy to release a cocktail of neurotransmitters and hormones. It's powerful. But but what we gotta understand is because it's powerful, it has both great positive and negative potential. It's powerful both for good and for harm. So like any pleasurable thing, for instance, it has addictive potential. And in our day and age, sexual addiction is a huge issue, a huge challenge. Because it's powerful, there are ways, a myriad of ways in which people could use sex and sexuality to control others. That's not God's design. It can be used as a weapon. It can be abused. You know, against individuals or even entire people groups down through history, we see sex and sexuality being misused. So as I prepared for this message, one of the things I I noticed as I read different books and listened to stories and messages, I noticed four common denominators of sexual brokenness. And so if you want a a little subheading for this section, I would call this setting yourself up to lose. I know that's not the goal, but it helps to know where the pitfalls are and where the traps are, the design of the enemy, because when we put even just one of these things sets us up to lose, but they become a powerful combination when they work together. And they fuel all kinds of um, extremes and brokenness from sexual anorexia uh, to sexual addiction and just unhealthy patterns in general that we struggle to break. The first of those common denominators, the first way to set yourself up to lose is silence. Silence. You know, we have a, a couple in our church, Johnny and Tasha Petman from Liverpool in the UK, doing a church planting residency. And when Tasha was doing her master's, she wrote her dissertation uh, on a pastoral approach to pornography. I want to read an excerpt from that. She said, By remaining silent, the church unintentionally creates the perfect environment for shame to rise up and cultivate. Not acknowledging that porn is a problem shuts down the potential conversation and confession. And so ensures that women and men stay in the trap of shame. Silence is a dangerous thing. We need to be talking about sex appropriately. We need to be talking about it appropriately, both publicly and 
and privately. And so if, there's, if I don't achieve anything else today, I hope one of the things that I achieve is to continue to break the silence with God's redemptive word on this subject, his word and his wisdom. It's a good word. You know, we ought to ask ourselves, are we encouraging people to ask questions in the world around us? Or, it is, or is the vibe that we put off overwhelmingly like a don't ask, don't tell kind of environment? Are we being honest with each other, breaking the silence, our struggles or our fears, our pain? You know, as a parent, raising our kids here in the city, it's important that we're not silent on this subject with our children. It's important that we're not silent. The world's not silent. Amen. Their friends are not silent. The enemy is not silent. We as parents, we as the body of Christ need to not be silent. Actually, a parenting principle that I learned was called the, the power of first mention. The power of first mention is that, you know, a, a young person or a child, when they hear something for the very first time, that first mention, as we could call it, becomes the lens or the frame through which they will assess all future information on that subject. That's a powerful thought. And you know what that tells me as a parent is I cannot afford to be the last person to speak on a subject. I can't be the last person at the scene after the world has framed their view. Within the context of the local church, we shouldn't be silent either. Not just for the sake of the next generation, but for each other's sake. You know, you and I owe it to each other in the context of community, right? Within the church, sometimes, you know, the, the church is quick to speak out against things happening in the world, but in the context of relationship or community, we ought not to be silent with each other if we watch a friend or a loved one straying into sin, whether it's, whether it's known or unknown, willful or otherwise. It's good that we desire not to judge. Amen to that. It's good that we desire to love. Amen to that. But, you know, sometimes our silence actually condemns us. So if I'm standing on the curb with you and I see you step out in front of a bus, I don't know if you've done that on purpose or not. I tell you, in that moment, it is not an act of love for me to be silent. And I might think to myself, well, I don't want to overstep. And you know, <laughs> that's not a wrong instinct. But in that moment, if I really believe you're in danger, I owe it to you to say something. Even if the choice is still yours, amen? In the context of the church, we shouldn't be silent. And the second danger factor for me, the second way to set yourself up to lose is shame. Yeah. Yeah. Silence is the first one and shame is the second. Chris Vallotton recently said, shame is the enemy of connection. That's a good thought, isn't it? Shame is the enemy of connection. In fact, he went on to say that, unfortunately, it's virtually impossible to have healthy connections when we feel disconnected through shame. So what's shame? Well, a simple dictionary definition of shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Now, what's interesting, and I didn't know this until I prepared this message, the word shame, the English word shame, actually is derived from an even older word, which means to cover. Isn't that interesting? Because the first instance of shame that we see in the Bible, in Genesis, in the garden, shame and to cover go hand in hand. We find the, the first instance, we see it in Genesis 2.25, before the sin and the fall of man, it says the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. That's Genesis 2.25. But then they disobey the command of God. Sin enters the world. And just one chapter later, Genesis 3 verse 7, says at that moment their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. You see it? Shame and the cover-up. 
And then God comes into the garden and they said, we were naked, so we hid. So think about the power of shame in that moment. Not only did it cause them to cover, but it caused them to run from God instead of running to God. Now, one of the reasons why this can be sort of a murky area or difficult to understand is there's some instinct in us that we should feel bad when we do the wrong thing. So, but what we're talking about there is a thing we call conviction. That's like the, the voice of the Holy Spirit through your conscience telling you, hey, you know, that's not God's best for you. And conviction can lead us to leave our life of sin and walk towards Him. But, you know, shame takes us from conviction into condemnation. And condemnation is a whole other thing that leaves us hopeless and identifying with our sin. So are we, are we creating environments of shame? Are we creating an environment, even for the next generation, growing up in our church, where sex is a subject that they associate with shame, where it's not okay to ask questions, it's taboo to talk about, and they get the sense that nobody wants to really talk about this. I mean, a, a personal example for me, a few years ago, we were traveling as a family and driving along, and, and the idea comes up, well, you know, we got the kids, we're on vacation, and I think, I should run into a gas station and pick up some condoms. And we stop out the front, and Eddie said, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know why, but I, I'm embarrassed. Like, I froze. I'm in another state. I'm in a city where I know no one. We have four children, everyone. I mean, they were not immaculate conceptions. <laughs> Cle clearly, there's been, you know, something's been going on. And I suddenly realized, man, what a pervasive thing shame is, that you have to dig out by the roots, that even in a to totally appropriate context where there should be no shame at all, we've got to be vigilant. It's a destroyer. Number three is secrecy. Secrecy. See, often secrecy is the fruit of silence and shame. Sets us up to have an environment of, of secrecy, even a secret life. One of the things that came out of Tasha's dissertation was that actually studies have shown that there's even more use of pornography within the church than outside the church. Now that's awful, and in some ways, it's not so surprising when you realize that oftentimes silence and shame have been the overwhelming kind of conditions in which people have thought on this subject. No wonder that secrecy has often been the fruits, why we need to break the silence. 1 John 1, verse 5 to 9 says, This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. And there's no, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. And we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, by the way, walking in the light sounds like the opposite of living a secret life, right? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So let's just determine to be people of the light. The enemy's MO, the enemy's kingdom runs on lies and secrecy and darkness, but God's word is truth and light and hope. And when we bring our sin and brokenness into the light, God forgives. Often the reason we keep it in the darkness is that we imagine judgment instead of forgiveness. We imagine shame instead of freedom, and it's just the opposite. The fourth thing is selfishness. Silence, shame, secrecy, and selfishness. Selfishness builds brokenness in our sexuality. 1 Corinthians 7, 1-4 
Paul's writing to the church in Corinth and he says, regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it's good to abstain from sexual relations, but there, because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to the husband and the husband gives authority over his body to the wife. Do you see the mutuality in there? Do you see the equality in that? This is, not, this is like the opposite of selfishness. This is actually what the scripture is saying here is, is the whole mode of operation for us in the context of marriage is actually to prefer one another. So sex should be about meeting the needs of my partner. But it can so easily become about meeting my own needs. You know, I think of one obvious example. I mentioned pornography already. There's so many levels in which pornography is an act of selfishness. Not only because it seeks, seeks to gratify my needs without any relationship or commitment by objectifying somebody else, but also because if you read the studies... A huge percentage, if not the overwhelming majority of people involved in the making of porn are actually coerced or the, the victims of human trafficking. It's an act of selfishness. And I, I think the theme here is that the moment sex becomes about getting rather than giving, we're straying from God's path. Amen? Right. Let, me, let me offer you two inconvenient truths as we think about this. Two inconvenient truths that I think we have to acknowledge you know, as, as a church, we have, we have five values. Love, truth, freedom, family, and others. Love, truth, freedom, family, and others. You know, to speak properly on this subject and to do it in a life-giving way, we have to hold on to those two values, those first two values at the same time. We need both love and truth. No use having truth without love or love without truth. We need them both. And so, so the first inconvenient truth I want to acknowledge tonight, and this is an important one, is God defines sin not me. God defines sin. And you know, one of the simplest reasons for that is sin, by definition, is an offense against God. God is the only one who can define what that is. It's, an, it, it's a transgression from His will, His way, and His word. So today, many people ascribe to kind of a moral relativism. I decide for myself what's right and wrong. You have your truth, I have mine. I say this is what offends me. We prize tolerance. But ultimately, the thing with sin is that sin and its consequences are the sole domain of God. So what does God's word say on the subject of sin in the area of our sexuality? Well, it says a lot, but I just want to give you one example that I think puts it really well. And interestingly, it comes in the context of religious people trying to lower the standard. So the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and trying to further lower the standard for divorce. In fact, it said that in Jesus' day, the Pharisees had gotten the standards for divorce down so far. By the way, it only worked in one direction. It was men divorcing the wife, not the other way around. Anyway, they'd gotten it to the point where if you burned a man's dinner, it was grounds for divorce. That's where it had gotten to. And so they come to him with their kind of very contemporary way of seeing this issue. How old-fashioned, how quaint that you would see divorce differently. They challenge Jesus on this subject and Jesus brings them right back to God's design. Matthew 19 verse 3 says, Pharisees came to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to, to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that in the beginning, the creator made them male and female. Just pause for a second. That's like a major Pharisee insult because what Jesus is saying there is like, have you read Genesis 1, right? Which is like, like they're trying to like bring up all of this teaching and Jesus is like, let's just go back to the start, guys. Let's do kindergarten, anyone, you know? 
God created them. The creator made them male and female. And, he, and it says, verse 5, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. By the way, the, the scripture only uses that phrase, one flesh, in the context of a man and a woman coming together in marriage. It says, They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Well, then they're not going to let it go. So they push the point. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But this was not the way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, I'm going to come back to that phrase. Well, that word sexual immorality is from the Greek word porneo, from which we get pornography. Except for porneo, marries another woman, commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. They're like, well, that's a high bar, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't back down. He doesn't do the, he doesn't say, well, you know, I know, I know it's hard, guys. He doesn't say, well, it's not such a big deal. Jesus goes right for it. And this is what he says. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. There are eunuchs who were born that way, Eunuchs have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So Jesus basically says, to paraphrase, if you want an alternative to faithfulness in the context of marriage, celibacy. Yeah. Right, they probably responded much the same way, right? <laughs> so Jesus brings us right back to God's design. And to be clear, Jesus Clearly teaches in the scripture here a couple of things. Number one, sex is for marriage. And number two, marriage is between a man and a woman. He's not neutral on this subject. And he uses that word I pointed out earlier in verse 9, porneo, which is important. We translate it in English, sexual immorality. But actually, his audience understood what that meant. Because there was a very clear definition of what God blessed, which was sex between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. They used this word porneo to mean everything else. It was like a catch-all category that included everything from, you know, sex before marriage to uh, adultery, prostitution, homosexuality. It was a catch-all. Porneo. Anything else is porneo, sexual immorality. So what's interesting is that although, for instance, to name one specific area, Jesus doesn't name homosexuality, he does address it. In fact, he doesn't address all the different ways in which we can transgress from God's design, which I feel like every decade that goes by, there's probably more. But he does assert that everything outside of a man and a woman in the context of marriage is immorality before God. So what's interesting to me, on the one hand, Jesus, for instance, doesn't mention homosexuality, but I appreciate that also he doesn't list it as like some kind of a super sin. You know, the scripture oftentimes when homosexuality is mentioned, it's mentioned right alongside lying and greed and gluttony. And yet, sadly, when I look at the church today, just to add a little counterbalance here, is there are many Christians who seem to have made homosexuality a super sin and a category all of its own. Well, I think there's a tension here because there's, there's no escaping that if you treat the scriptures as holy, then sin is sin. But on the other hand, if Christians would just spend, some Christians would just spend a fraction of the energy that they have spent vehemently opposing homosexuality on working on lying or greed, or gluttony, number one, the world would be a better place. And number two, I suspect some of the voices shouting the loudest and the angriest would discover logs in their eyes. We've all got work to do. Amen? But here's the deal. I don't get to rewrite the Bible. 
Even the uncomfortable parts, the non-PC parts of the Bible. Like 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul finds out that a man is, is uh, sleeping with his father's wife. So we don't know if it's his stepmother or his actual mother, but it's happening. The church knows about it. Nobody's addressing it. And Paul doesn't write how I think some Christians would today, which is more like, well, do they really love each other? <laughs> Are they committed? Is it monogamous? No. Paul just calls the sin as sin. Why does that matter? Well, I'll tell you why it matters, because we're not in the business of condemning people, but we have a problem when we minimize sin. See, if, if, we, if we minimize, if we diminish the reality of sin or judgment or hell, even if we do it with good intentions, we want to be gracious, want to be loving, we don't want to judge others, amen to all of that. Here's the problem, though. When we diminish the reality of sin, we also diminish people's understanding of their need for a Savior. See, it's, it's when I realize what a sinner I am, and that God loves me anyway, that I run into his loving arms. If sin doesn't matter, if morality is just ultimately relative and personal anyway, then Jesus didn't need to die, and we don't need to follow him. It's an inconvenient truth. The second inconvenient truth is that we have made idols of our sex and sexuality. Now, I might sound like I'm contradicting myself because I've made a point of how important of a subject this, this is, and amen to that. But, you know, we've taken it further. You know, for many people in our day, I think sex is like the religion of our generation. Yeah. And we've elevated sex, our sexual identity. We've elevated our personal freedom even above God and at what cost. So Romans 1.25, for instance, says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Now, our bodies, our sex and sexuality, these are created things. So it's good and it's wonderful, but it is not more wonderful than God Himself. We're not to worship or serve created things. What's interesting is that chapter goes on to show that the, the fruit or the result of that misdirected worship, that idolatry, was sexual sin. So sex is a wonderful blessing from God, but not more wonderful than God himself. My sexuality is part of me, an important part of me. It matters to me and to God, but it's not who I am. So our society, I think, on the whole, is so idolized sex and sexuality, it becomes inseparable from our identity. I saw a talk by a man, I'm going to show you just a short clip, uh, by Sam Olberry, who's one of the, the uh, teaching team with Ravi Zacharias Ministries, and He's the author of a book called Is God Anti-Gay? And he talks openly, he mentions it in this clip, about his own personal struggle as he describes it with same-sex attraction and yet his deep conviction that the gospel is good news. Check this out. Um, when I've done talks on this issue, I've, I've lost count of the number of people who've come up to me afterwards and said, yeah, but the gospel's harder for you, isn't it? Because it goes right against who you really are. And the first thing I respond by saying is, actually, my same-sex attraction is not who I am. It's part of what I feel, but it's not who I am. But secondly, are you trying to tell me that the gospel is just kind of slotted in neatly into your life without any kind of reappraisal or cost or frustration at all? Because if that's the case, it's not this gospel you've received. There is no one for whom the gospel is not hugely costly. And there is no one for whom that same gospel is not utterly worth it. Amen to that. 
And Chris Vallotton recently said, you are not your temptations. So you and I, we are not our worst decisions. We're not our darkest thoughts. And particularly in Christ, it pays to remind ourselves, remind our souls that we are new creations in him. So, so what's the, you know, I was wrestling with this. If the church is going to be part of the solution instead of part of the problem on the earth, what's the big challenge? You know, I think, I think some might think in our day and age that the big challenge is the views of society are changing or it's the government, it's the law. And uh, I don't think those are the big problem. I, I think, I think the, the big question, the big challenge for the local church is this, is, this is my question. I think the big challenge is where's the grace? Where's the grace? You know, it's right that we don't approach these subjects lightly. I'm certainly not approaching it lightly. I think if we can approach this subject lightly, it's very possible that our world is so small that we've become separated from those who are still deciding if following Jesus is worth it. If all we have is pat answers and hand-me-down revelation, if the implications of the things that I'm teaching or that you know, the fullness of God's word just sit easily with everybody in your world, you and I need a bigger world. Amen? Love builds a bridge for the truth, love and truth. Love builds a bridge for the truth. What I appreciate about God's love is that love doesn't require that truth is forsaken, but love goes first. Love goes first. This is a big deal. Where's the grace? Have we lost sight of our own humanity? Where's, where's the humility? Where's the revelation that the, the Bible describes you and I, if we follow Jesus, calls us jars of clay? In other words, we are earthen imperfect, fragile vessels that heaven has put its treasure in. In that sense, we're all just on a level playing field. You know, I don't believe that graceless Christians and graceless local churches will do anything at all to help heal a broken world. And when it comes down to it, in the words of Jesus, does any of us have the right to throw the first stone anyway? I want to talk about judgmental religion in Jesus' day, they caught a woman in the act of adultery. They bring her, throw her at the feet of Jesus. First question is, where's the guy? Anyway, they throw her at the feet of Jesus, not because they care about her. They're using her as a trap for Jesus. Bloodthirsty, angry crowd, demanding judgment. And Jesus does a curious thing. He says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And then the awkward silence ensues. And they all realize None of us is qualified, well, except Jesus. And what does he say when the crowd is emptied out and everybody refocuses on their own need and their own sin? Jesus says to her an interesting thing. Now, he doesn't say, see, it's not a big deal. You know, sin's not sin. He doesn't try and wash it away or cover it up. Jesus does a beautiful thing. In one moment, he brings both love and truth, love and truth. You know what he says? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Love built a bridge for truth, for change, for transformation. He doesn't deny that the sin was sin. But what's interesting to me is that one of the chief criticisms that they had of Jesus was that he was a friend of sinners. Isn't it a bit of a tragedy that many of his modern followers would never be accused of being a friend of sinners? That's a tragedy. We shouldn't be proud of being an enemy of sinners if Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. 
I think we have to acknowledge that the church at large, and, and I'm proud to be a part of the church, the body of Christ, but let's be honest, the church has done a lousy job on this subject down through the centuries. Both in its teaching and its example, it's mishandled, sex and sexuality and a lot of harm has been done. I think we ought to be able to freely confess that and repent of that corporate, collective sin. But then what is the church? Very easy for all of us to say, oh, the church, the church. Well, the other side of that is the church is not an idea or an institution. The church is you and me. So while we're, it's very easy to, you know, pick at or criticize an idea or an institution, we have to search our own hearts because each of us are also guilty of sin. I've experienced grace. I've experienced forgiveness. Maybe you have too. Am I willing to extend that to others? It helps if we just remember that every person the scripture says was created in the image of God. The imago Dei, the image of God. When we see the image of God in everyone, even if they don't see it in themselves, even if they're railing against you and what you believe, to see the image of God in them. Because who am I to judge, right? That position's been filled. Throne is full. <laughs> That's not my job to be the judge. In fact, you know what my job is? My job is to remember Romans 2.4. This is beautiful. Romans 2.4 says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That's how God leads us. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So come on, church, if we're going to be part of the solution, if we're going to help people, if we're going to love and lead people to wholeness and to God's design, where's the grace? Let's remember a couple of things as I land this. Let's remember, number one, that the gospel is good news. It's good news. Actually, the word gospel means good news. It doesn't mean it's always easy news or popular news, but it's good news. The second thing we ought to remember is that this is a safe place for you. Whatever your background, whatever your struggles, whatever your pain, maybe you believe completely differently to everything that I just taught. Well, you're welcome here. And you need to know that. We're glad that you're at the table. You're welcome here. I think the third thing we need to remember is that he is the God of second chances. Amen? Third chances, fourth chances, etc. Dot, 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 right? (laughs) He's the God of redemption. He's a restorer. I think the fourth thing we ought to remember is that even when we've feel like we've blown it, or, or maybe our brokenness is a result of the choices of others, he is still in the business of making all things new. He's a redeemer, a restorer, so that fifth and finally, the future can be different to the past. Isn't that a beautiful thing? The future can be different to the past. Your future can be different. And the generations, I think about the generations too. What a beautiful thing. Whatever pain choices and circumstances you and I have navigated. I think about this a lot as a parent, as a pastor. I was like, what a beautiful thing that we could create a place where the next generation would know nothing other than wholeness and God's best. They know what it is to have a healthy approach to sexuality and God's design. He's making all things new. As the worship team come join me, I, I think what we've got to understand is that the good news is that God so loved that he sent his son to pay the price for our sin. Christ endured the cross, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him. These days, um, people often say, and they mean all different things by saying it, they say love wins. And it's true, love wins. But how did love win? Love won by sending a perfect, sinless savior 
to die in our place and to conquer death so that we could live. Our freedom was costly for Jesus. And God didn't pretend that our sin wasn't sin, but instead Jesus took the payment, the consequences of our sin upon himself that we'd be whole. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Church Podcast. If you are in New York City or will be visiting the New York area soon, please be our guest on Sunday. For service times and locations, please visit libertychurchnyc.com.